0: We have a kid's church, so um, leaders, thank you, and the kids as well. The God of history from Daniel chapter 11, verses, 11, verses 1 to 45. So we are nearing the, the end of our series in the book of Daniel. It has been a, a challenging book in so many, in so many ways. The first half of the book, while easier to understand, it challenges us not to compromise our faith. It's challenging to what an example Daniel was and and to, wow, what a life, right? To be able to, to resist all the temptations around him and still follow God. The second half, chapter 7 to 12, are more difficult to understand because they are prophetic and apocalyptic. So a lot of the Bible studies finish at chapter 6. I'm a little bit braver. I want to tackle some of the more difficult passages in Scripture, and here we are. We've heard the reading, and you're probably all thinking, what on earth are you going to do with that? As a result, and we're not alone. If you're feeling that way, you're not alone, because these... These chapters have produced a lot of debate amongst biblical scholars. It's even more difficult for the liberal scholars who consider these verses, they're not, they don't see it as prophetic, they say these were written after the fact, after the events happened. I don't waste my time with them, neither should you. Now, last week in chapter 10, we entered the fourth and last vision in Daniel, which runs from chapters 10 to 12. Daniel 10 sets up the stage for chapter 11, arguably the most difficult, this is the most difficult chapter in the whole of the book. And there are many puzzling details that at first seem a little confusing. So we're going to take a helicopter ride and pick up some important lessons and I won't go into a lot of the details and so that might be frustrating for you but you've got the time, you've got the internet, you can go and do as much research as you want in your own time. The chapter makes little sense without any historical commentary or aid to read alongside of it. But with a little help, it becomes clearer and at the end of it, hopefully, you will see this is is amazing. This is wonderful. We want to get there, but I'm building it up here. Now, we recall that that the angel came in chapter 10, came in response to Daniel's prayers, not only to strengthen him, but also to give him insight into the future both near and a distant, far future. Most of these events have already been fulfilled, all these events that you read here in chapter 11, in the last 2,500 years. But some of it hasn't, as it has to do with the end times, which is getting closer. and That involves us. So from verses 1 to 20, kingdoms come and go. Verses 2 to 4, now then I tell you the truth, three more kings will arise in Persia and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with a great power and do as he pleases. And after he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. These verses describe a lot of conflict and wars and kings. And as Daniel was listening to the angel tell him this, he must have said to him, slow down, I can't keep up. And Daniel learns in verse 2 that in the future, after the current Persian king Cyrus dies, there will be three more kings who arrive, and then a fourth one who will, who will take on the, the growing threat to the west, which is the kingdom of of Greece. This fourth who is this fourth king? Well, this fourth king is King Xerxes, who is the same king that is referred to in the book of Esther. And even though he wasn't the final king of Persia, he did go to war with Greece and lost a, a decisive battle against them at the Battle of Salamis. You can read your history, ancient history, about that one. Sometime later, a mighty king from Greece comes to power. His name was, of course, Alexander. And after he suddenly dies, mysteriously, at the age of 33 We see in verse 4 that his kingdom is divided amongst the four winds of heaven and given to others who are not related to him. His kingdom did not go to his descendants. His four generals are given, are distributed the kingdom. We looked at this in chapter 8 when we spoke about the ram and the goat. Remember that? The south. Refers because there's a lot of talk here between the north and the south. The north and the south. What, are, what is it? Well, the south refers to one of the generals called Ptolemy, who founded the Ptolemaic kingdom, which was based in Egypt. Cleopatra, you've heard of her. She was from the Ptolemaic line. So this was. The first kingdom, the the Ptolemaic kingdom was the first kingdom that had control over Judea and the Jews who were situated in the the beautiful land, the the promised land, which which included Jerusalem. The kingdom of the north refers to the Seleucid kingdom, which was founded by Seleucus, another of Alexander's generals. It was based in the north of Judea in Syria, which today, it's still called Syria, and these kingdoms and these kings and their kingdoms were often at war with one another, the north and the south, and Judea was caught in the middle, sandwiched, pushed against the sea, they were always taking turns, sandwiched between these world powers competing for control some initial lessons. What does it all mean for us? Firstly, the turnover. In these first 20 verses, there is this constant shift of power between nations. This was just simply like a, like a prelude of what will happen once the Romans take power, and they will be in power for about 500 years. But... I say it a prelude because some of these Roman emperors, they would only be in power for a couple of months and then they will be stabbed, they will be killed, they will be dethroned and all of that. It just goes on and on. Why? If you follow the reading, the long reading this morning, you would notice how many times the word but appears in the text, but only for a time. It's there because despise all of their troubling plots and plans, things happen other which they have absolutely no control over. Namely, the at-working of God's purposes. At the beginning of this book, we read this about our great God in chapter 2, verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. Who is he? He is God. God directs history. They think they're plotting, they think they're murdering their you know, they're changing policies and all of this. No. It's God. Each of these kings are subject to the providence of God. The God they mind not not actually acknowledge, and most of them will not, obviously, because they're pagans. So if they don't acknowledge him, they won't see him. They won't consider him as powerful or influential in the affairs of men. Yet we know the Scriptures declare that he is the sovereign God who nonetheless rules powerfully and governs all things, whether you believe him or not. That's irrelevant, whether you believe it or not. Secondly, the second lesson, initial lesson is, do not be moved. You were leaving in Jerusalem 2,400 years ago. What do you think the morning headlines in the newspapers would have been like? Or if you opened up the internet, what do you think they would have said? One week, one day, it would be the Syrians are coming. The next month, the Egyptians are here. And then he'd swap over one headline to the next, the next. The poor Jews must have considered themselves the whipping boys for these so-called world powers. When's it going to end? Today, the media loves to parade one apocalyptic event after another in front of our eyes. Trying to grab attention. Trying to push their agenda. Whether it has to do with climate catastrophe, economic gloom and doom, world powers jockeying for position. It's always the same. It's always some expert, some scientist, some leader, Trying desperately to grab attention for their own purposes, whatever they're trying to do. And every day they, they peddle these, these headlines with monotonous regularity. I like what the Scottish pastor Sinclair Ferguson and scholar Sinclair Ferguson said. And I quote, The people of God do not view the great ones of this world through the eyes of the media, but through the spectacles of scriptural revelation. Every time you hear the headlines, and this is so true, isn't it? Every time you hear the headlines, you say, well, what does the Bible say about this? That's why I think these, these chapters, even though you might not... Like to read them, it's a a, a reminder why these future events, future for Daniel, history for us, were revealed to Daniel then and to us through him. That whatever God decrees, that's what's going to happen. This is why King David said, Psalm 62, verse 6, King David said, He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my high tower. I shall not be moved. I shall not be moved. I'm not going to be influenced. I'm not going to get all depressed about it. Only God is my salvation. The headlines aren't going to get into my head. God is. Now in verses 21 to 35, there is despicable figure. Verses 21 to 22, we're going to read, he will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honour of royalty. He's not even called a monarch or a royal. He's not part of the royalty. He will invade the kingdom when he's... People feel secure and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. Now in the first 20 verses of this chapter, we cover a period of about 350 years. That's a long period, right? Now in the next 15 verses everything slows down to a period of about 12 years. So we zoom in on one particular individual that we've met before in chapter 8. And there is vast agreement among scholars that the figure spoken of here is Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus IV. In many ways he was the same as the... the many other tyrants that rise to power before him and after him. He took the throne through scheming and murder when he wasn't even the, the next one in line. He had a big head, big ego, and so he called himself, instead of calling himself, you know, Charles Third or Antiochus IV, He calls himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which means epiphanes means revelation. He calls himself a revelation of God, not the God, but Zeus. He calls himself a revelation of the God Zeus. Verses 29 to 32. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastland will oppose him and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favour to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then he will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Now the events described here are exactly what happened. Antiochus invaded Egypt beforehand, went back, then he tried to invade Egypt again, but this time he was thwarted because the ships of the western coastline. Who are they? They are the Romans. The Romans were already an emerging nation, early days yet, but the Romans opposed him. Why? Because Rome didn't want a strong unified east. Rome is to the west. They didn't want a unified power towards the east between the north and the south. So they sent some ships and a delegation to talk to this guy Antiochus, of, and they spoke at Alexandria. It's a historical event; you can read up on it. And, and the 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 Roman official, the Roman general, gives them an ultimatum. He, he says to him, "Well, this you're not what you think you want to do. You're not going to do it." We're not going to let you. And, and uh, so Antiochus asked the Roman general to be given some time to consider it, right? To consider the, the conditions sent by Rome. The, the Roman general's name was Gaius Papilius Laenus. We don't have his name here, but history can give you his name. And so He draws. He grabs a sword and he draws. This is Antiochus sitting, uh, standing up there on the sand, and so Gaius, you know, he draws a circle around Antiochus and uh, and told him to make up his decision, to make his decision before he steps out of the circle. Wow, you want time, right? I'll give you time. And Antiochus realised he didn't have the forces to oppose Rome. And so he gave up his quest to be emperor of the east. He was embarrassed. He was humiliated. He heads back home towards Syria and on the way. What again? What will he do? Everybody's favourite pastime. Take it out on the Jews at Jerusalem. He managed to sweet talk to some, obviously, but in the end, he managed to kill about 80,000 Jews and murdered them. Anti-Semitism has been rife for historical for, for history.'s been going on. And, and for a while, as we know, he set up, you know, he, he banned circumcision, the Sabbath, the Torah. He desecrated the temple in Jerusalem, and uh, you know, poured wine on the altar and set up an altar to Zeus, and sacrifices were suspended. That is the 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 abomination that causes desolation that is referred to in the Old Testament. It's also picked up in the New. All of this happened until the resistance by the Maccabees. By Judah Maccabee, who opposed him and therefore overthrew him. Some further lessons here from these, this uh, this passage. Firstly, ordained by God. Ordained by God. You will notice a phrase in this passage that appears three times in, in verse. Three, it says, as he pleases, that phrase, as he pleases, is repeated in verse 3. It's repeated in verse 16. It's repeated in verse 36. The ultimate dream of any emperor or any wannabe emperor like Paul Mossachuk or like you is we want to rule things. We want to be in control. We want to do as we please. We want to make the decisions like we feel like it, right? This is, this is why we sing songs like... Uh, this song was written by Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. You probably remember the words. I'm not going to sing them for you. Because I'm free to do what I want any old time, and I'm free to be who I choose any old time. Isn't that the ultimate dream? I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Isn't that what the world tells us? It's your choice. It's your decision. That's what these despots thought they had. All the freedom with not a care in the world. As he pleases, right? Three times it occurs. Over and against that, we have this phrase, at the appointed time. Verse 27, verse 29, verse 35. As he pleases, and verses at the appointed time. What does that mean? Who appointed the time? Because you see, as, as evil and despicable as Antiochus was, and he was... Despite all the freedom he thought he had, his exploits were nonetheless limited, restrained by God. There was an expiry date to his freedom. Sometimes it was longer, sometimes it was shorter. Restrained. Ultimately, you see, he was marching to God's drumbeat, not his own. How does that make you feel? You know all that freedom you thought you had? All the freedom that is displayed in our media and all of that. Really? At the appointed time. Secondly, a costly confession. And here is one of the most encouraging words, I think, in this whole chapter. But the people who know their God will resist him, will firmly resist him, verse 32. The promise we have in this passage is that even if our confession, what we believe in, what we we stand for, our faith, comes at a great cost, even if it might cost us our very lives, We do not suffer a purposeless life by remaining faithful to God, by standing up for what we believe. It is not without purpose. Someone wrote, and I quote, our view of history is foundational to the way that we live. If history is just an assortment of random circumstances coming from nowhere and going nowhere, then faithful suffering has no possible meaning. It is a waste of a life that could have been better spent pursuing pleasure instead. But if history is actually following God's predetermined course to a final end, then our actions are filled with meaning. And any sacrifices that are demanded of us will be made even more, worth, more than worthwhile by our hope of glory on the last day. Costly confession. The history of believers is constant. It doesn't change. It hasn't changed for thousands of years. It's not changing for many of our brothers and sisters who are undergoing suffering at the current time. And only God knows what is awaiting us in the future. The Antichrist, verses 36 to 45. And when you hear the, the headline, the Antichrist, you're all, ooh And these are particularly, this, this bit here in, in, in Daniel is probably one of the most controversial bits in, in the whole of the letter. And then if you follow it in Ezekiel and then in Revelations, this is where it has its beginnings. Then the king, again that phrase, will do as he pleases and he will exalt himself and boast against every god and will speak dreadful things against the god of gods. And he will be successful... Until the indignation is finished, because that which is determined will be done. Determined, there it is again. And he will show no regards for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god. For he will boast against them all, but instead he will honour a god of fortresses, a God, whom his fathers did not know, he will honor him with gold, silver, precious stones, and treasures. So some some see these verses as a continuation of Antiochus' epiphanies that we read about in the previous verses, while others, like myself, see a rapid shift, a prophecy concerning the very end of history itself. In any case, there is agreement that Antiochus Epiphanes remains a type, a model, if you will. He shows all the characteristics, this new guy, this new king, shows all the characteristics of what an Antichrist will be like. We we go to the words of John, the Apostle John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, or they have already come. And this is how we know it is the last hour. In other words, many Antichrists, or Christ's substitute that's what it means will rise up throughout history before the final Antichrist. And throughout history we know that there have been many many such leaders and despots who have committed atrocities, they deified themselves in order to gain to gain and maintain power. It could be Antiochus. It could be Chairman Mao. It could be Hitler. It could be Stalin. It could be Idi Amin. It could be Pol Pot. The list goes on and on and on. But if you thought that Antiochus and his ilk were bad, if you thought all these other despots were bad, coming up is an even more dreadful, fearful, despicable figure in the future, the Antichrist. And and, and verse 37 says, "He, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women nor will he show regard for any other god for he will boast against them all. Now, I've deliberately chosen the reading from the NASB, which is a little bit different to the NIV. It says here that he has no desire for women, which in today's language could mean that he is same-sex attracted. You can fill in the rest, right? Also... He sounds like an atheist. I think he is an atheist because he just worships himself. At least Antiochus worships Zeus, right? The Greek God. This guy doesn't worship anybody but himself. Still not convinced? Well, 2 Thessalonians. You can read a lot more about the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is what the, I'm just going to read verses 1 to 4. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered up to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter or by Christian novel, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself above over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. it is again. There's a lot more to be said about this, but let's just leave that there and go to our final lessons. Firstly, there's no celebrity worship here. The history that's prophesied in this text it isn't concerned with celebrating the the power and influence of some of these great historical individuals who lived at various times. For all the vitriol and scaremongering from uh, this despicable person and others like them, it says here that he will come to his end and no one will help him. That is the phrase that is used. He will come to his end and no one will help him. Alexander, I gave you all the statistics about Alexander. At, at 25, he ruled the world. At 29, he was, yeah, emperor of the universe. At 33, he was dead. Mysterious circumstances, though. He just died. I don't know if it was syphilis or something else. He just died. How did Napoleon, there's a movie coming up from Napoleon, how did he die? He was barely, I think in his 50s, in exile, you know. Nobody wanted to know him, he just just died. For all the vitriol and all the scaremongering and all the headlines and all the stuff that you hear on the news and all the movies they make about them, the way that they worship him in Hollywood, this despicable this, this, this person and others like him, he will come to his end and no one will help him. Or in the language of Thessalonians, Thessalonians 2.8, he sounds very much like the one who Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth. He's not even, Jesus is not even going to pull his finger out and knock him over. He just just drops dead. What? There's no car chase? There's no fist fight? There's no sword fight? There's no chase in the end? No. There's no dramatic Hollywood ending here. It's just uh, curtains. That's it. Secondly, A perplexing answer. Now, let's go back to Daniel, right? And how all this started. Chapter 10. If I was Daniel and had been fasting for three weeks, pleading pleading to God for my people back home, intensely, right? Praying. And then if the angel, you know, locked into a fight in the heavenlies and finally comes... And so I'm waiting for the answer. The the angel comes, he encourages me, and and he gives me this answer, this answer that I received from the angel, a long answer. He got an answer, but I'm not sure it's the answer he was waiting for. Listen, Gabriel, Michael, uh, look, I just wanted somebody to go and help the people in Jerusalem. And now you're giving me a, a whole description of history 100, 500, 2,000, 3,000 years from now. Why? given this answer. It's perplexing. In the same way, let's bring it home a little bit closer. In the same way that someone might be saying to me this morning, you could be here, you could be watching online, Pastor, I've just been diagnosed with cancer, or I've just lost my job and I'm about to lose my home. I came here. I'm listening to you because I I want you to give me some hope, but I'm not hearing it. I'm not hearing it. I'm not. I'm not huh? I thought you guys were supposed to give me hope and fill me up with purpose and life, and you know, make me joyful and happy. It's not there. If this is you, then I'm sorry for what you're going through. We can pray, we certainly pray to our God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. But I also plead with you to consider setting your hopes just a little bit higher than your troubles of this life. And I think this was a challenge for Daniel as well. Now, if these words that I'm sharing with you this morning aren't enough for you, then there are other preachers in other churches and you can look them up on the internet and YouTube, whatever. They can tell you what you want to hear. You can go to the one that will tickle your ears, all right, and tell you what you want to hear. But I need to come to Jesus to, to, to listen from God's word and hopefully that's what I'm doing, that you see Jesus through here. And this is what the Apostle Paul said, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If all your hope, if all your plans, if all your struggle is for this life, if all the overtime and all the savings and all the empires that you want to build in this life, Are only for this life. Knowing what you know about the truth of the gospel, us Christians are to be pitied if we are living like the pagans. And the apostle Paul said you're to be pitied above everybody else because you know the truth. Live by it. There's no excuse for you to be stupid. There isn't. Not for me, not for you. Okay, because over there they don't know this. You do. And please remember this, our final point. God is our helper. Remember our first reading this morning, the psalmist said, God is our refuge and strength. An ever-present help in trouble. The God we serve is more than able, more than up to the task of keeping, guarding, healing, preserving, defending us, you, me, our family, his church, fulfilling his purposes. And remember, again, that While Daniel wrote all this as prophecy, for us it is history. A lot of it is history. But the stuff that is still to happen, it's going to happen just as God said it would. He was right then, He is going to be right today, and He's going to be right tomorrow. That's why it's there. And we now wait. We now wait for the rest to be fulfilled. The end of the story when the book is going to be closed and so will all of history. And it will happen just as God said it would. Amen.